Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome back to Talk Nation Radio, Craig Murray. Craig Murray is a former British ambassador to Uzbekistan, a whistleblower on torture, uh, a diplomat, an author, an all-around great guy, and his website is Craig Murray. M-U-R-R-A-Y dot org dot U-K. And we're going to be talking about his blog post there in particular called The CIA's Absence of Conviction. Craig Murray, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much, David. Why why do you say that the, the supposed uh, Russian hacking of the emails of the Democratic National Committee and so forth uh, didn't happen, wasn't a hack at all, in fact, was a leak. Yeah, well, um, it's not just me that's saying it. Julian Assange has um, said also that you know, it was nothing to do with Russia at all, um, and, and, and it wasn't. This is um, a leak from inside sources. Um, there are two different um, groups of information, of course. There are the DNC emails and the Podesta emails. And in, in neither case, I should be clear, in neither case are the Russians involved, the Russian government involved, and in neither case was it an uh, illegal outside hacking operation by hackers uh, breaking in, breaking passwords and that kind of thing. That, that's not how the information was obtained. And, and when you say that you've met the leaker, is that of the DNC or of the Podesta emails? Ah, um, you, you'll forgive me if I don't give too much more detail on that. Um, uh, but it is uh, not of both. Um, I, I, I've met one of the people involved. It's, but, but it's one or the other of, of those, at least, the, the DNC or the it, Podesta emails. Exactly. It's one or the other of those. And the person is an American with no connections to uh, Russia at all, as far as I'm aware and believe. And, and with Julian Assange saying, not who it is, of course, but that it's not Russian, uh, it seems unprecedented. I mean, what, didn't it used to be WikiLeaks policy that they wouldn't say anything about sources? Yeah, I think um, I mean, that still is very much WikiLeaks policy. And I think it was just under, you know, the extreme pressure and lies being, uh, being put out um, has caused Julian to make a small <laughs> a small deviation, only a very small deviation from that policy to say it's not yeah. not Russian and, and say no more about it. But I mean, it, he's only making a very small deviation from the policy because if it's not not Russian, that still leaves 95% of the world's population. It, it could be <laughs> Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, Although uh, you're you're cutting so it down it's, to 4% for us. I am indeed, but I'm not I, I'm, I'm not an official WikiLeaks spokesman. You see what I mean? I, I'm an independent character, and thus I'm able to to give a little more. Uh, uh, a little more information about some of the things that have been going on. Yes, indeed. One one of the points that you make online, which I think is an excellent one, uh, is that if the U.S. government actually knew uh, who did this and wanted to go after them, there would be indictments, there would be prosecutions, there would be <laughs> drone murders, there would be something. Uh, instead, there's there's nothing. How how might they explain that? I find it quite astonishing. I, mean, I can think of no reason whatsoever why, if they actually knew who it was, if it was an agent of Russia, why they wouldn't be naming the person and uh, and arresting them. 
And okay, obviously, uh, you know, if, if they're claiming it's not an American citizen, it's somebody outside the States, well, that wouldn't stop them either because we've had five or six high-profile cases of hackers being extradited or attempted to be extradited from the UK to the United States, for example. Uh, the case of Gary McKinnon was, was one. Wherever they are in the world, they'd be going after them. And if they were Russian, then they'd be adding... You know, there are an awful lot of Russians individuals who are named and subject to personal sanctions, to banking sanctions, to travel restrictions yeah. connected with various policies of Putin. Uh, if, if they know who it is and it was a Russian person in Russia, uh, then they would be naming them again and they, they would be making them subject to asset seizures and banking and travel restrictions. None of these things are happening because actually when they say they know who it is and they know it's an agent of Russia, both those things are lies. They they don't know who it is, and it isn't an agent of Russia. I, I'm not even clear that they've even claimed that. Maybe you can clarify, but it seems that the CIA has put out nothing. The There's been no national intelligence estimate. We're told by the Washington Post that there are dissenters within, and they can't all agree in the so-called intelligence so-called community. And uh, rather, what we're told by anonymous sources is that somebody in the, that so-called community uh, is making this claim uh, with some degree of confidence that this is consistent with if the Russians did it. Uh, you know, so, so what actually uh, is being asserted here? No, you're, you're right. Well, the, if you like, the official assertion that was to some extent official, which came out during the election campaign itself yeah. was that this was consistent with the methods and and aims of Russia, which says nothing whatsoever. That means we have nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's consistent with the with the method and aims of Saudi Arabia and Mexico and everywhere else too, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, what the Washington Post had been claiming recently. Um, is slightly more concrete in that they have been claiming that somebody in the CIA has anonymously beefed them, that the CIA do know who the individuals are and that they are agents of Russia. And, uh, but it's not, it's not an official release from the CIA at all. Uh, and actually, yeah. it astonishes me, it absolutely astonishes me, that on the basis of these unofficial, anonymous beefings to the Washington Post... Um, you've got the media going totally mad and people calling for the election to be annulled or the Electoral College to be beat. What are you going to beef the Electoral College on? Hello, yeah. you, you know, we have an, uh, an anonymous source saying it's somebody, but we can't tell you who, and we think it's the Russians. Yeah. How can you beef that to the Electoral College? You know, it, it's, it's astonishing the and way that the mainstream media ha have picked this up to to create a total nonsense out of absolutely nothing. And, and, and on the other hand, you get the impression that these, uh, these Russian hackers must be close, intimate friends of the Washington Post reporters because they claim to know with absolute certainty their intentions. How in the world are we to believe they know uh, their intentions, uh, you know, that the intent was to elect Donald Trump? Yeah, no, no this is absolutely nuts. Um, and 
I mean, it doesn't begin to have a logical coherence. <laughs> okay. It really is quite so, hard to, 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 to come to terms with. So we have Congress members now claiming on the basis of this absence of evidence to be absolutely certain this is just established fact, and yet demanding to see the evidence uh, because they're so interested in it, not that they doubt it. Uh, and w- w- presumably there's, there's nothing to show them. What do, what do you think is the next step in this little drama? Um, it's really hard to know. I mean, what, what the media should be doing, if the media were doing its job, is the media should now be demanding that the CIA puts up or shuts up. It either names the individuals it says are involved and, and produces the evidence that they were involved, or it admits there's nothing to this story and it has no, it has no evidence. I think the fact that the FBI has refused to back up the CIA uh, you know, is, is is very important. But, but sadly, the, the media are much more interested in concocting a story out of nothing uh, than they are in actually attempting to hold the executive to account, which ought to be the media's job. I mean, what journalists ought to be doing is approaching the executive with scepticism, approaching all those congressmen who, who, who are trying to act as a, a sounding board for, for, for this story, to, yeah. to approach them with scepticism and say... We demand to see some actual evidence, or we're not going to believe any of this. Uh, but, but sadly, the, the media are taking the absolute opposite tack because we we don't really have in the mainstream media we don't have real journalists anymore. There's nobody actually investigating and digging and being skeptical of what they're told by people in power. It, it seemed to me that the original purpose of blaming Russia was to distract everybody from what the story was, which was the DNC, you know, sabotaging its own primary. Uh, and yet now, uh, with, you know, the teeniest fraction of people in the United States having heard anything about the DNC rigging its own primary for Hillary Clinton against Bernie Sanders to the extent that it did, uh, we're to believe that the exposure of that information actually swung the election. How is this what what they're claiming? Well, it seems to me uh, it's absolutely fascinating to me that you have this schizophrenic attitude. On the one hand, the uh, mainstream media are in denial about the effect that the WikiLeaks released material had on the election, because. The mainstream media all along refused to outline the information that was contained in those emails. And in particular, you know, the fact that the timing of primaries was organized uh, by the DNC in the different states in order deliberately to disadvantage Bernie Sanders' campaign. Uh, that, of, of the debates uh, in particular. had advanced notice of debate questions, um, you know, all all the things that came out in that, and of course all the stuff about pay-to-play and people able to donate to the Clinton Foundation in order to get influence with the State Department. Yeah. Um, all, all that was suppressed by the mainstream media. But people still got to hear about it anyway because they got to hear about it other ways. You know, There, there are workarounds now for, uh, through the mainstream media, particularly from social media. So um, it's, so but, you're... but even so, the mainstream media have never really admitted the fact but all that happened and all that had an influence on the election. And yet at the same time, while never having admitted it had an influence, they're now trying to say that Russian hacking is what lost the election. And the whole thing just doesn't stack up. Their ability to be in total denial yeah. 
and at the same time, in total exaggeration, uh, is quite astonishing. And, but, and your your claim is not that hacking into a computer is something that that Russians would never do, right? That's not your claim, is it? It's it's that you actually know who did this, and it wasn't Russia. Oh yeah, I'm. I mean, I was, you know, uh, involved myself in handling top secret material for over twenty years, and um, there are all the major countries have spy services, and they they spy on each other all the time. Um, and that's a, a simple fact of life. Um, and it's true, it, it could have been the case that, that Russia was hacking. Well, I mean, frankly, I, don't, I think the Russians got better things to do with their money than hack John Podesta. <laughs> but they could, they could have done that. But as, as it happens, I happen to know they, they didn't. And both the DNC and the Podesta emailed... Um, came from sources which were not Russian and, and um, were American inside sources. And that could be sources inside the organization itself, or it could be, of course, uh, American agencies which themselves are monitoring and surveilling people's communication. Inside the Democratic Party or inside the U.S. government? Yeah, uh, and oh. basically, uh, it, it's either the DNC or the NSA. We, uh, let, let, let me put it that way. And sure. of course, it isn't necessarily the same one for both the Podesta and the DNC emails. Okay. We have uh, just a minute left. See if I can squeeze in two more quick questions. Uh, one, in the past few days, I have had... N- Endless people, people who knew there were no weapons and said, don't go into Iraq, it's all lies, telling me that anything the CIA says is the gospel truth. I mean, absolute reversal. It's, inc- it's stunning to me. Any, do you have any outside the U.S. perspective on what in the hell is going on with these people? <laughs> it's very strange. I, I mean, the great irony, of course, is that the CIA... Is, interfere- is accusing another country of interfering in, in domestic elections, whereas interfering in domestic elections of other countries is the prime purpose of, of the CIA and has been for 70 years or so. Of course. Uh, okay, last question, got to run. Uh, are, 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 where do you get the nerve? Do you feel safe? Do you expect a subpoena? Do you expect a, uh, an indictment? Uh, do you expect anyone to be coming after you for, for making the claim you're making? Um. Well, as you know, I was a um, uh, a whistleblower on torture and extraordinary rendition um, ten years ago, and I, I've been through the the gamut of legal debts, of physical intimidation, of flat burglaries, of all all, all, all those kinds of things. And I've um, I've been working with whistleblowers now for a decade, and I'm I'm used to it. My my daily life isn't the ordinary life of <laughs> of an ordinary person, in a sense. And, and but I'm I'm used to living with certain level of debt, so. Um, I'm, I don't quite want to say it doesn't worry me, but, but I get by. Craig Murray, you are an inspiration. We're grateful to you. Thanks for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much, Dick. It is my privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Vincent Emmanuel. In 2002, Vincent joined the U.S. Marine Corps as a squad automatic machine gunner. After two combat deployments in Iraq, he refused orders for a third and immediately began organizing with Veterans for Peace and Iraq Veterans Against the War. In 2008, Vince testified to Congress at the Winter Soldier hearings on Capitol Hill where he provided detailed accounts of war crimes, atrocities, drug abuse, and sexual assault within the U.S. military. 
During this period, he continued to work with various movements, participating in a wide range of campaigns, protests, street theater performances, writing workshops, and direct actions. Vince's experiences in the military have been captured in Olivier Morel's award-winning documentary film On the Bridge, which has been recreated in the French graphic novel Revenants. His writings are transcribed interview I'm sorry, his writings and transcribed interviews have been featured on Alternate, Counterpunch, The Christian Science Monitor, In These Times, Countercurrents, and Znet. Vince has also appeared on numerous television and radio programs, including on NPR, BBC, CNN, Russia Today, Democracy Now, and Al Jazeera English. So watch out for fake news. Uh, Vince, welcome to <laughs> Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. So are you are you in North Dakota right now? No, I'm actually back in northwest Indiana, which feels like North Dakota after a massive snow uh, storm this weekend. Ah, I wish we could get some of that in Virginia. Um, let's talk about uh, North Dakota and and being there and what's happened there and what role uh, veterans have been playing. Yeah, so, I mean, to begin with, I'll say, uh, let's talk about the positive. I heard the call out from Wesley Clark Jr. and from Michael Wood. I knew there had been many veterans who had already, you know, sort of been at Standing Rock. I talked with folks I knew from Veterans for Peace and also from Iraq Veterans Against the War, and then just independent vets I knew who traveled out there. Uh, over the summer and then in the fall. And then, of course, the major call came out. I think it was uh, maybe two or three weeks ago now. And I got together with some friends. I had a good friend of mine who actually was in the same platoon as I was, uh, Sergio Corrigan. He also testified on the Hill as Winter Soldier, and now he's shooting a documentary film in Ukraine. Uh, he's originally from Ukraine, so this makes it even more interesting, and then being a veteran from the Marine Corps and then being anti-war activist and so on. So to have him in town was a great pleasure. Well, at least to have him in the States. He flew from Philadelphia to Chicago. Uh, we met up with a childhood friend of mine, Tony, who is about, I've known for about 22 years, and another veteran named Vince who lives in Hammond, uh, about three miles away from the largest tar sands refinery in the Western Hemisphere, the BP refinery in East Chicago, Hammond. And I met Vince through IVAW uh, years ago, so we hadn't seen each other for, I think, seven or eight years. He got a hold of me. We got a hold of my childhood friend, Tone, and then Sergio flew into town. We rented an SUV, and we went up to North Dakota on Friday. Uh, I believe that was December 2nd. Yeah. And, uh, and what did you see and do? Well... You know, it was interesting, David. I mean, we, the, the call-out was very vague. Michael Wood and Wes Clark Jr. don't necessarily represent an organization as much as they're sort of individuals, say, veteran celebrities or semi-celebrities, however you want to put that. I think Michael Wood is more so known for his speaking out about his experiences as a uh, Baltimore police officer. That being said, if there was kind of a problem with organization. So when we got there, there was a lot of uh, sort of conflicting word about what was happening. Some veterans came independently. Some had figured we were going to participate in direct actions. Of course, the original call-out from Wes Clark Jr. and Michael Wood had sort of stated that the veterans were going to be used as a human shield to protect the water protectors from the police. And, of course, people around the country had seen 
the devastating images of police shooting water cannons in sub-zero temperatures, uh, beating people, unleashing attack dogs on people, shooting people with rubber bullets, including and specifically the media as well. So seeing all of this, a lot of veterans of good conscience decided, look, we have to show up, we have to be a part of this. They were originally expecting 2,000 veterans, and there were estimates that there were up to three or 4,000 veterans there. So even with the 2,000 who, had, who it was sort of the capacity for the event, even within that group, it was very hard to distinguish sort of where people were coming from politically because there was no sort of organizational infrastructure. You know, people just kind of showed up. But the overwhelming feeling, and this I find to be very positive, for most of the veterans I spoke to, and I spent at least three days just running around the camps interviewing people by the dozen, and the veterans... First of all, many of the, for many of the veterans, it was the first event they had ever been to like this, outside of, say, those who came with Veterans for Peace or Iraq Veterans Against the War, and they didn't make up, you know, a, that significant of a contingent of the veterans. But even many of the older veterans who had attended this, the first time they had been a part of an action like this, and it was interesting to see how willing a lot of them were to put their bodies and their lives, if needed, on the line for this specific cause. So when we got there, you know, it was, it was chaotic organizationally and logistically, but the conversations that we had with veterans, conversations I had uh, throughout the week that we were there, was uh, they were truly uh, motivational. I mean, they really reminded me of myself uh, 10 years ago, very fresh, home from the wars, angry, um, trying to figure out how to process that anger, but also trying to figure out how to do it in a positive way. Uh, it's, it's quite obvious that there's a significant number of veterans in the United States who hold progressive left-wing political views, whether they would describe them that way or not. Yeah. And, and they really want to spend their time and effort doing something uh, worthwhile and meaningful. And I, I, to me, that's, has to be the greatest takeaway of, of uh, going up there in terms of uh, from the veterans' perspective. I, I I think a lot of people found the apologizing on behalf of centuries of U.S. militarism to Native Americans very powerful. I'm I'm wondering if you think uh, a lot of the veterans you spoke with were there, uh, and other people you spoke with were there uh, principally to to uh, aid the Native Americans or there to protect the climate of the earth? Um, because I th it does make something of a difference in terms of a response to rerouting the pipeline. You know, is rerouting the pipeline to somewhere else going to be uh, a victory if that happens? Uh, or is the, is the motivation to prevent such pipelines getting put down anywhere? Well, let me answer your Second question first. So I, for me, and I'm sure for yourself, and I'm, I hope for those who will listen to this, the point is to stop the pipelines completely. And I don't, at this point, I think obviously the, the facts are on our side. This isn't necessarily even an ideological perspective anymore. This is simply what the climate scientists around the world are telling us. We have to leave fossil fuels in the ground. So that aside, most of the people who were there did hold those views, um, whether they be simply because of ideology or whether that be because of the facts uh, as they are. So many of the veterans I spoke to 
while they were happy with the Army Corps of Engineers' decision, same thing with many of the natives they spoke to, especially those who were dug in. And I don't think we can sort of overstate this, but those, that, those sort of small victories, as much as I can become cynical, I think as much as all of us can become quite cynical at times, because we're constantly getting stomped on by these very powerful industries and institutions. The people who were some of the happiest that I spoke to and the people that I interviewed were the people who had been dug in there for months. So, you know, some I mean, I spoke to people there, including veterans who had quit their jobs to be there. I spoke with people who were going through problems with their relationships, uh, with their family, because they were telling their family and their friends they were coming to North Dakota. Um, so there was a great deal of sacrifice, and people sacrificed not simply to reroute the pipeline. The majority of people I spoke to made that sacrifice and were willing to put their bodies and lives on the line to stop the pipeline completely. And so as far as your first question in terms of the apology and the ceremony, uh, there were a lot of people who attended. Uh, and it, it was interesting. There was a large portion of the activists who, I would say much like when I was young again as a younger, uh, speaking specifically here about veteran activists, a lot of people came there to stop the pipeline, but I think found themselves being somewhat fueled by the process working with Native Americans of reconnecting with the earth. And it, I saw this process as well on an emotional level, on a subjective level for veterans uh, during the Winter Soldier testimonies, when a lot of us, myself included, I think felt a great debt to the Iraqi people. I still do. It was the primary reason why I got engaged with activism, because I thought it was the least I could do would be to speak out about these atrocities. Yeah. Uh, and while we didn't commit the atrocities personally against Native American peoples here, the, that gesture, as much as it was symbolic in, in nature, I think meant a lot for a lot of people there. And in a lot of ways, I think those politics are a lot more advanced than my politics were as a 22, 23, 24-year-old anti-war veteran who was just learning about U.S. empire and imperialism. The veterans who were at this event knew about that part. They knew that we were already being used in Iraq and Afghanistan, but they knew that it ran much deeper in American history and that it was very rooted to this cause and this cause being tied to climate change and climate justice. And uh, that's much deeper and much more sophisticated than I can remember my politics at that stage. Yeah. I, I wonder, uh, you know, it, it may become easier for people uh, to, to grasp uh, truths these days with a president-elect who says things like, if you're going to have a war, you better steal their oil. Uh, then, you know, when we had George W. Bush or Barack Obama who pretend the wars are defensive or humanitarian and so forth. But I wonder if people, uh, in particular veterans, are associating the, uh, the pipeline and the environmental destruction with the wars that are often uh, fought for oil and the military, which is, you know, little known fact, the biggest polluter of our of our environment that there is, um, because right. the, the environmental groups uh, ought to be taking an interest in the pipeline, but generally the big environmental groups don't want to come within, you know, a, a 10 miles of an anti-war movement. Uh, and 
uh, I'm wondering if this sort of this sort of action is an opportunity to merge these two movements that that really ought to be one. Oh, I completely, I completely agree. And yes, most of the veterans I spoke to, it was very clear. I mean, even for myself, I mean, the it, it's all right there. I mean, not only were we sent to go fight, kill, and die for uh, pipelines for I'm sorry for oil companies, but now you know we're hopefully using some of the more useful skills we learned there and becoming a better human being and so on to fight pipelines in the same oil company. So I've either been fighting for or fighting against oil companies, I feel like, since I was 18 years old, David. Vincent Emmanuel, thank you very much for everything you're doing and for coming on Talk Nation Radio. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.